Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk's podcast. I love the series that we're doing right now, and I've called it Building Verbal Imitation in Late Talkers. Today, we're up to the third level in this system, but the fourth show, because you know, when I do a series, I always do an introductory show, but this is show number 425, and today we're going to be talking about how to teach a child who's late talking to imitate nonverbal actions with his face and his mouth. So before we get going with how to do that, let me remind you of a few little housekeeping things uh, before we get started. This show is available for continuing education credit for therapists. And to get your credit in our $10 CEU program, all you need to do is click the post below the show uh, here on YouTube. Or if you're listening on your podcast app, you can get information about getting your CE credit and your certificate at Teach Me to Talk, uh, which is my website and this is show number 425. Now this is part of a bigger series and all of this information is from my treatment manual, Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers. And if you have that book already and you're, you're following along with the book, we are going to be talking about today level three. And so you can see uh, that we are marching up this continuum to be able to teach a late talker to imitate functional words. But here's the kicker. You can't get there <laughs> by starting with words. And we know that late talking children struggle with anything verbally. And how do we know that? Because they would be talking if they didn't. And so this is a very sequential program or approach uh, to teach a child to talk. And as I mentioned before, you can get uh, your one hour of CE credit for this show in our $10 CEU program by going to those links and you'll also get a handout which will summarize everything that we're talking about uh, in today's show. So when do we start here? with level three with the child. Uh, I'm going to give you some really distinct uh, starting points here, uh, but I want to be sure that you are in the right course. If you are following along with us, you know, in our first show in this series, we did Why Imitation Matters, and then we talked about at the end of that show how to determine a starting point. And so we've already done a show about uh, teaching a child how to imitate actions with objects, and we start there when a kid is nonverbal or when he's not very connected to you, when you're not sure that there's any imitation going on at all or when you're just looking to uh, just kind of reassess everything and start off at the beginning you would start with uh, teaching a child to imitate actions with objects in the last show we made it a little harder for kids because then we were bumping that up a little bit and we were taking actions but doing body movements and then making those actions shaping them to be a little more communicative meaning that we move from body movements to gesture so that was back in level two. At that point, many, many, many late talkers are ready to jump ahead to level four, but we're not quite there yet. There's a subset of kids who, again, it's going to be a small percentage of your caseload. Uh, they're going to need the strategies that we're going to be talking about in today's show. And so at this phase, we're helping a child learn how to imitate just movements with his mouth or with his face. We've moved up his body. We started with his hands and his arms and now we've gotten all the way up here to the mouth and again most late talkers are ready to jump right in and start to imitate some sounds uh, uh, that move toward words but for a lot of our little guys they're just not quite there yet and so we're going to teach them how to do some nonverbal things so that their attention is really directed right here to our faces and so again this can kind of be an in-between step for some kids who need this now this step is controversial in the field of of speech pathology and if you are a parent or another therapist you may not another kind of therapist you may not understand it you know what would uh, the rub be here so I'll go ahead and tell you there's quite a bit of research that especially with children with apraxia or motor planning issues or when there's no physical component that will t that tells us that learning how to imitate anything non-verbally so any kind of non-speech oral motor activity or even anything with an oral tool and, or toy and what would that be that would be something like a 
horn or a whistle. Anything that you can get a kid to do like that still may not be effective in helping him learn how to talk because there are different systems. Even though we're all still talking about your mouth and your lip, your articulators, your lips, your tongue, your cheeks, that there's not the same connection when we use that for a non-speech or something where a kid's not talking, if you're, if you're doing that, even though it's the same structure, not connected to talking. But there are just as many people on the other side of that argument that say when we know that there have been muscle tone differences and feeding problems, when we know that there's something going on structurally, it makes sense to think that there would be, there's some effects of those issues that are also contributing to a child's inability to talk. And so for us, we can expand that a little bit more and say it might also be why they're not imitating anything with their mouth. And so if you're not an SLP, you know, I may have just bored you to death and you're just thinking, why would she even, you know, tell me what it is? Who cares who, you know, what expert believes what? I just want you to know as a therapist, and especially if you're not an SLP and not familiar with this kind of conundrum that we have, have, uh, you know, what's going on in our field about that, and that there are research, and there's research and researchers on both sides of this argument, and big names, you know, who strongly believe in an oral motor component to your treatment plan, and then those who don't. And so you can take a look at that and kind of uh, see for yourself. I'll kind of tell you where I stand on this. I stand firmly in the middle <laughs> because in my experience, a small percentage of late talkers really will need these kinds of things. And, uh, but let me just say, it's pretty rare. And I have worked with lots of different kinds of kids, but I have found that sometimes kids who are late talkers, and especially the kids who are more significantly involved uh, with their physical challenges, sometimes they do not even realize that they have a mouth. Or maybe that it's a kid with just, again, his sensory processing, sensory regulation profile is just really extreme. He is in constant movement. He really is an under-responder because he has to know you know, he has to move, 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 and, you know, jump off the back of the couch over all the cushions, barely missing the table before he even realizes that he has legs and feet because they land firmly on the ground. <laughs> and so now I'm sounding kind of like an OT, but I really, really believe that. There are some kids who, again, have so little awareness and control of their bodies that we have to do this step. And again, these, these kids are going to be few and far between, but if you need this stuff, you need this stuff. <laughs> so I want to be sure that I'm teaching you this and helping you uh, get and uh, resources that you can use to help you move through this. And let, let me just say, I am not an oral motor expert or even a proponent of oral motor stuff uh, in, in the fact that I don't do it very often, but again, only when I really, really need it. The, the other side of that is, you know, the researchers would say, why are you working on awareness? Because so many few, so few young children actually have awareness. They have little awareness, yet they begin to talk or they might say, you don't really need strength for talking you just need agility or that coordination piece not strength and I just want to say all the time yeah I get it I feel that way too but when there's a missing piece when we can't move a child toward vocalizing more often or when we can't when we're not hearing uh, these sounds start to come in even though we've worked with the child to teach him to imitate actions with objects and even though we've gotten him to do some hand motions and some songs and maybe he's even using some sign language and maybe we've even gotten some AAC systems established which again would be beyond the context for this podcast series yet there are some kids who are not making that jump to become verbal or become vocal or however you want to think about that and I, I think about I think about this so many of our little late talking friends up until this point everything they've done with their mouths has been reflexive so they've eaten they've they can drink they can sneeze they can cough, they can yawn, they can laugh. But when it goes to something more purposeful like speech, 
they have a hard time getting to that next level. And so again, I've, I've done a lot of talking to just kind of convince you of, of my position, which again is solidly in the middle. Not every child will need this who's a late talker, but there are going to be some kids who, who you are going to want to do this. So let me just say, this is most often my backup point. When I have gotten imitation going again with out here with actions with toys or even their little bodies but yet we're not over that hump I've tried to introduce the things that are coming in level lower four and level five with play sounds and with exclamatory words and I'm getting nowhere this would be where I back up to and I say oh this 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 is what I need to do this is this kid's going to need some more input here and some more work here at this level and his parents are going to need to do some more things at home for this so that we can hopefully get moving in another direction and talking and imitating non-verbally and verbally I will be realistic for that child so when might we think that level three these kinds of things uh, would be necessary I think about it when I know that a kid has a history of feeding problems and again it could be a physical feeding problem and that structurally there were some things that prevented uh, uh, just nursing or bottle feeding or early spoon feeds with uh, purees and solids they're just whatever process whatever phase that feeding has been disrupted in we know again when there have been structural things there and some structural differences that or, or just some effects of that even though you know it might have been a neurological kind of thing we know that we might have to do some level three things here so it might have been kind of a feeding problem due to a physical issue what about sensory issues with feeding we see that a lot especially in our little friends who go on to be diagnosed with autism they reject whole classes of foods they only you know they might only eat uh, uh, they might only eat crunchy because they they pureed so they just they just rejected that and again that might be kind of a sensory thing or maybe maybe it's the other way they can't they only like mushy they can't they only do yogurt and mashed potatoes and you know maybe one other kind of puree thing and they only eat those three foods so there's a sensory component to that child's feeding issues so we know again that that that's been hard for those kids so that's kind of when I think about it that's sort of one of my number one things uh, I, it might be that we talked about before the because of the physical challenges or physical differences anytime that we see muscle tone issues that are prevalent or obvious and so why do I say that it's because sometimes we go overboard <laughs> with this oral motor uh, analysis in our field and I will read a report uh, from another therapist and I'm looking at a child and they say uh, low facial muscle tone and I'm looking at him and I think well how did you get there because his mouth is closed he doesn't have an open mouth posture he doesn't have a ton of you know he's not a prolific drooler uh, when I look at his little face he, we don't see droopy or sagging kinds of uh, muscle tone tissue there again like I said he's able to keep his lips close he gets good closure they're symmetrical and so I'm looking at the kid going why are they saying lower muscle tone you know is it mostly related to feeding so you've got to look for these obvious things so when I see a kid come in who again you know I'm just going to model that here their little muscle tone is so low that everything is is uh, droopier for lack of a better term so that uh, parents who are watching might understand that you know flaccid if I could use the professional term there uh, you know okay that's a kid with a muscle tone problem so with our little friends with down syndrome with our little friends with any other like cerebral palsy or any other kind of neurological uh, uh, anything medical that's been diagnosed that affects muscle tone I think oh they might need this step they might they might and so again another time when I think I better add this as a component of their treatment plan it's when I've tried everything else <laughs> <laughs> and I'm getting nowhere and I think this you know we're missing something here and so this again would be when I've seen little or no progress without it I'm going to back up and see if I can get some things going here uh, for level three in <clears throat> in this approach so why would we want to include some of these things as a part of our therapy program the main thing is we're teaching a child what you should have a one-word answer here. What are we trying to teach a child to do in this whole podcast series? Our one goal is what? Imitation. 
So we are just looking at a harder, more complex way for a child who is not talking to learn how to imitate. We are making his imitations harder than in that last phase. So that's all we're doing here. Again, we're not we're not to words yet. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about vocalizations at the end of this show and some things we can do if a child is not noisy because let's face it, you've got to make noise to talk. You've got to be able to vocalize. So uh, again, though, we're not going to get ahead of ourselves. All we want to do here is teach a child he has voluntary control over his little mouth. And we know what we said before, when we use tools or when we use activities like blowing and sucking or whatever we're going to do, we know that that does not always carry over to speech sound production and it does not, we can't always quantify a muscle tone strength improvement or improvement in coordination. But <laughs> some kids do benefit because of the, our one focus. They learn that one focus, which was to what? To imitate. And again, this is going to get us further down the line toward talking. Now, if you're listening to this and you're an SLP, you know, I'm really talking about anything that we can do non-verbally with your face and mouth. And so you're, you might be kind of thinking about, uh, can we use some tools? You know, what are the kinds of things that, that, you know, and there are lots of other kinds of tools out there right now. Some I'm not even going to uh, talk about those various companies because there's some things that are going on that, again, I don't really agree with philosophically. But we've got now, but we've got a long history in our profession of using tools to help our clients, particularly our clients who, like I said before, have had those muscle tone if issues and differences or either the sensory, uh, how they perceive input coming into their uh, little mouths and faces. And so if you're interested in looking at that long history of tools and if you're trying to kind of convince yourself one way or another, uh, Pamela Marshalla has a whole presentation about that going back, you know, again through the whole history of our profession as SLPs uh, at oralmotorinstitute.com. Now again, some experts, particularly apraxia experts like Nancy Kaufman, says that once a child is imitating words, uh, or sounds, these activities are not going to be productive or useful unless we have another goal in mind. And again, what is our other goal in mind here? It's imitating. So we have to uh, be sure that, again, I I'm trying to do everything I can to <laughs> give you information on both sides of this debate just so that I am encouraging you to uh, think about this uh, just, just as just as logically and as rationally as you can for each individual child that you see. And so uh, I use these activities too, again, diagnostically when I'm not getting anywhere. I think, what what can I get this kid to do even non-verbally with his little mouth to imitate me? This is part of a child's therapy program. This would never be the full focus of anything that I would do. And as I've already said, sometimes these are where I back up to in a session. A lot of times in a session, I'll use this kind of stuff is just a treat or a diversion where when language has been so hard and imitating has been so hard and this might be something that I think wow you know this seems like a break or a fun thing but we're actually again targeting that that nonverbal imitation here it's also a way that we can satisfy kids who have those strong oral cravings and we know those kids those are our mouthy little friends right everything is in their mouth. Now we know that it is developmentally appropriate for a child to continue to mouth toys until he's 24 months or that second birthday. But beyond that, we know that there are some developmental delays going on. And so a lot of times that's because uh, kids have these sensory issues that haven't been met through kind of that typical maturation process and so they still need all that input in their little mouths and so this might be a way that we could do that too. I also really stressed uh, teaching parents how to do these kinds of things always with the same kinds of little disclaimers that I have used uh, here with you and talk about both sides of the research there and why I think this might be an important component and that if we are not seeing any progress or for some reason if a child has an aversion to it, a really strong aversion or, or whatever, I just want parents to be able to make their own decisions and to be able to say yay or nay on these kinds of things. And so again, I've found that even when I present 
present that to parents, most of the time they're saying, whatever you think, let's try it. Let's move forward with this. And then we always want them to know, too, this shouldn't really be our only our only strategy here and so parent parents will understand that and they will appreciate the um I just want I guess I want to say just the level of thought that you have put into deciding whether this will be a strategy that you'll use or not all right so let's talk about specifically the things that we need to say here from our handout. We've already talked about that. Remember, I've started most of these shows with the important things, the three or four important things that I want you to know about imitating at this level. And we've done the same thing here with level three. Uh, we've talked about how, uh, what it is that kids learn how to imitate their facial and mouth movements with no sound. This can also include learning to blow or suck uh, with whistles and horns. Uh, again, this is very controversial in our field with support on both both sides of that argument. Uh, however, the other thing that I wanted to clarify just one more time, this focus is not necessary for most of our late talkers. So if you, again, have backed up to this point, or if you are trying to just move forward and you think, I just, I want to I just want to cover every base. I'm leaving no stone unturned in how I help my child. No, this may not be something that you have to do. So we, we, what are we talking about here? Here we are looking at using exaggerated facial expressions and mouth movements to begin. So I want you to take your hand out and look here in this section so you'll get an idea of what we want to do. So let me just read you a couple of these things. This would be that we might show a child how to open and close mouth as he pretends to eat or playfully bite and so all of these things we're going to put in the context of play now why do we do that because it is developmentally inappropriate to take a one or a two or a three-year-old and belt them in a high chair or put them up on a table or whatever and say you know and this is this is how I've, I've said it in the course before you know now is the time to begin the oral motor treatment uh, uh, portion of our therapy session today we're not going to do that we're going to to blend this and make it as developmentally appropriate and as fun as we can and again within the context of play activities so that's why I've tried to give you even as I'm enlisting these examples of what I really want you to do I've tried to always give you uh, the play context for that so that you are not messing it up that way because it's going to be really difficult for you just to be able to say to a late talker uh, do this do this do this, do that, you know, and, and one thing after one thing after one thing, they imitate these uh, facial and mouth movements. They're not going to be able to do that. That's not, even typically developing children would have, uh, you'll have a really hard time getting them to do that. So you've got to blend it with play and include it as play so it's part of what you're doing together. Um, when we're playing, things that we might do that aren't even with our mouths. We're just getting them to, again, uh, realize that they can imitate up here with their faces. It might be that, you know, we make really big, you know, wide, crazy eyes. It might be that we, uh, you know, uh, puff out our cheeks and then push the air out with our hands. <laughs> You know, it's part of a little play routine there. What happens a lot is you'll puff out your cheeks and then take the child's hands and get them to do it on your face and do that a lot. And then you reverse it where they are puffing if they can. And then you are pushing their little face. And a lot of times this just ends up in giggles. Kids don't even, they're, they're, they're just trying. You know, they may look at you like, you know, like I did it, you know, and certainly uh, when kids are making those attempts, we want to uh, return their play and, and meet them where they are and try to do that, but just move them toward imitating uh, facial expressions. And again, it, it might not even necessarily start with their mouths. Uh, it might be uh, rounding your lips in an O oh, when you're acting surprised. Let's say that you're playing with, with, a toy together and something has happened unexpected one thing that you might try to do is just model that little scared face like oh and over time see if a kid will start to try to do that too now at the beginning they're going to laugh hysterically I hope <laughs> and think that you're funny and get that but you want them trying to imitate those facial those facial things that you're doing and can't you see how that's a natural extension of the gestures that we were doing in the last show 
in the last podcast where we were talking about teaching a child how to imitate actions with his body or body movements. And so now we've just made that a little bit more complex by moving up, moving up and using our faces and our mouths for that. It could be chattering your teeth, you know, like you're scared, anything that you're doing, you know, smiling, pouting, grimacing, puckering your lips for kisses, you know, so a kid that, um, you know, is blowing kisses that you know, he might have just kind of done that with his hand. Now he might try to get him to pucker a little bit. And, and some of these things are going to be too hard for our little late talkers. But if they're older, if they're preschool age and they're still not doing these kinds of things, you know, we certainly, uh, this, this might be worth working on for them. Uh, anything like smacking your lips, licking your lips, sticking out your tongue, wiggling or clicking your tongue. So, or, or even pretending to lick. And so you can see how some of these things will really uh, fit into your play routines. I try to do a lot of these things when I'm playing with uh, pretend animals, so little farm animal sets or little zoo animal sets where you can say, oh, the kitty cat wants to drink some water. And then you are, you know, holding the little kitty cat down, but then you are modeling with your own lips, you know, and tongue. Or you might say even, uh, let's say that you have two little people or even say two little baby dolls and you're going to make them kiss. You know, you want to do the little kissy sounds with that. Or uh, let's say that you're pretending that you're alligators or a shark or something like that. You know, you're going to model opening and closing your mouth. So anything like that that you can think of, take a look at this list and think, how can I make this fun for the specific kid that I'm working with? What kinds of animals does he like? Does she like playing with baby dolls? Would this be more fun for her in the context of playing with baby dolls versus animals or whatever? You can take a child's favorite things. Let's say Peppa Pig is her very favorite thing to do. You can make Peppa Pig, you know, you're quote unquote pretending Peppa Pig is doing all these things. And so Certainly try those things and remember what our goal is here. It's a, that the child is attempting to imitate you. It's that he is doing more with the imitation than he did yesterday or the last time that you worked with him. So imitation is our only goal. And I'll tell you here another thing that I do is uh, I go right into these level three activities when a child is interested in my mouth. And so when you see a child really just studying your face and looking at your lips or when you see a child uh, maybe a kid is even trying to put his hands in your mouth and as a therapist we've all had that happen they're telling you I'm paying attention to what you're doing with your mouth right now and that's when I try to get some imitation going so I might try to you know pretend to eat his fingers just like you know and then see if he'll you know after I do that three or four times I, I pretend like I'm going to put my fingers in his mouth and see if he'll sort of do that to me and get some of those little back and forth exchanges going. That's when you're going to have the most success with this because a child, again, you know that he's not as resistant when he's reaching for your face and doing that. And will he always be able to imitate and make his own little body and his own little face do that at that time? No. Sometimes not initially. You may have to do this over and over and over and over, but at the same time, you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> so that's, that's a good starting point, and I, I've found that to be uh, more successful there. So when we, let, let's talk about this too, and I mentioned this in our other shows, but in case you haven't watched those other shows in a while, let me say that we always start out kind of bigger and then make it move more refined. And that would be whether we're talking about how a child develops control of his little body and that we, you know, we start out with gross motor control and then we get fine motor control. Same thing here with our faces and our mouth. So start out with things that are, you know, bigger for your face and then move to the things that are more refined, like smiling, like clicking your tongue, like smacking your lips. And, you know, I hope that makes sense to you. Another thing that I've mentioned too, um, as we're moving through this continuum is introducing the little toys and tools that he can use with his mouth. So you'll want to get a variety of horns, of whistles, of any little musical instrument, like a little harmonica, anything like pinwheel wheels that a child can blow. Uh, 
even common household objects like funnels or like uh, toilet paper or paper towel uh, tubes or those rolls or even cotton balls. And again, we don't really care if a child can blow across the, a cotton ball across the table. I'm never going to document that his <clears throat> his uh, air his breath control was better because he blew the cotton ball two feet instead of two inches. I'm not. I'm not going to think about that. All I'm thinking about is, is he trying with his mouth? Is he moving closer toward uh, this uh, imitation, even nonverbal imitation with his mouth? And so that's that's the context for there. All right, so I mentioned using these mouth activities in play. I want to be sure that I give you a couple of more examples. And so again, even if you're not going to the mouth, like I said, you know, we could do air kisses, you know, if you're kissing an animal, but or, or you know, licking like a kitty cat, you know, he's going to drink his milk, she's going to drink her water, whatever. But don't forget about the things. If kids can't do that yet, go bigger. So play with zoo animals or dinosaurs and say, oh, look at that dinosaur's mouth. He's going to open his mouth so big. Let's do it. Let's do it. Ah! Even something like that. Or, or even like, <clears throat> like stretching on your neck like a giraffe. Look at how long that giraffe's neck is. Look at that. Let's stretch and just see. And can you see how that's so similar to what we were doing in the previous level with imitating body movements? But now those body movements are really, really specific. They're just right. Now, sometimes at this level, therapists might recommend puppets or mirrors. But let's just talk about those two scenarios that we might see with toddlers. Some toddlers will love that and they will be so interested in looking in the mirror and they will focus on that. But sometimes then they don't include you. They are just so interested in looking at their own little faces there. And even sometimes that can kind of turn into a lick fest where they're just all over that mirror and you have completely lost them. And so some therapists might say, that's fantastic for oral motor exploration and blah, 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 blah. That's not our goal here. What's our goal? Our goal is oral imitation before we get to that verbal piece or that vocalization piece. And so anytime that we're in introducing something that interferes with our goal. We either have to change the goal <laughs> to be more like what the child is wanting to do and we think, well, how can I use that? Is that something that's going to help this child? How can that benefit? Or we have to change our materials. So if the mirrors end up to be, as I like to think about it, more trouble than they're worth, I'm not getting any benefit from it. I'm not going to use them. But some kids, some older toddlers might be able to really watch you do something in the mirror and then try to do it themselves. But I've found for that, really just that face-to-face -face imitation is the best thing where he's right in front of your face and you're right there and you're just looking at each other. And then there's, there's that nice joint attention and that that shared exchange. That's really how we want to do it. So if you can use a mirror, that's great. There's a ton of, you know, we don't even have to have a ton of research to tell us that mirrors will work, especially with older children. But because we're talking about toddlers and babies, or maybe even young preschoolers with pretty significant developmental challenges or delays, uh, we know that mirrors may not work. So just a little caution there. We also, let's talk about puppets. Sometimes kids, you know, you think, oh, Oh, I can get the puppet to do it and the kid will be so interested. You know, I found that toddlers are more interested in where is your hand? How is that working? And you kind of lose them in that. And so you never get around to working on the, the things that you want to do. Your goal for that um, oral oral imitation there, nonverbal imitation with your mouth. And so uh, my point same as the mirrors. If it's not helping you, it's probably hurting you. And so don't use anything like that if it if it doesn't seem to work. Now we can use feeding activities for these things. And certainly our feeding therapist uh, colleagues who 
do maybe that SOS feeding approach where everything is playful and they're working toward systematically getting a child to uh, take a food and accept a food, try a food that he or she has previously rejected. Those kinds of things where you are using pretend food or you're making or even a real food where where you're playing and you're doing that again that exploration you may be able to get a kid to imitate some things there with food you know when you have your real cookie or your plastic cookie and you're you know pretending to bite it you know however you do it however you do playful feeding whatever you do there that may work too and so feel free to experiment with some props at this level and see if you can get some imitation going on with the kid's mouth even if it's not a sound or a word per se all right so let's move on now and talk about these uh oh well let's before we move on let let me go back and be sure that we are talking about exactly how to get a kid to imitate that. And we've talked a little bit about using it in play, but let's run through this so that you know these steps so that you can walk through this. So you're just going to pick two or three of these mouth movements and you want to work them into activities with a child. And we've talked about especially when he's showing awareness of your face. And so if we've thought before, hey, I'm going to see if I can get him to do little pretend kisses or little air kisses. So so when he's interested in your face and really, really looking at you, that's when you would try it. You would, you would do it then. And just model, you know, the, oh, look. Just model your little kisses and then look at him expectantly. And you might even say, you do it. You do it. Show me. Kisses. Kisses. You may even do something like uh, our friends who are feeding therapists are more oral motor oriented than I am. But you might even do some little cues you know can I give him some little gentle facial cues now if that makes him run away if he gets upset he doesn't want you anywhere near his mouth at that point I stop because the connection with the child for me is the most important thing and I know all communicating uh, is based on two people who want to talk and who want to interact so I don't want to do anything that's going to drive a child away from me so if I can do some of these these cues that aren't too invasive and they aren't aversive to a child and he's not completely rejecting me you know then I'll try it but but I wanted to mention that as well if a kid's if, if if it's too in his face then it's just too in his face you're you're going to either have to do things differently uh, when you try to give him those cues maybe maybe you've used too soft of a touch and so that's really overstimulating to him maybe you've been too rough for lack of a better word and he just doesn't want you to have he doesn't want you anywhere near him or his mouth and so see if you can change your approach maybe those kinds of things might help him be a little bit more aware uh, but again some sometimes it, it doesn't necessarily work as well as we would like we talked about we're going to provide three to five models of uh, these mouth movements like we said before when we were talking about in levels one and two we would um, uh, demonstrate what we wanted that child to do three to five times and then if he doesn't imitate us we want to take as much as we can we want to help him do it so take his little face you know and provide those cues but again we cannot make a child imitate these facial or mouth movements when they're not doing it sometimes again it's just that our their attention isn't good enough so do everything you can to put yourself in a child's line of vision so sometimes that might mean that he's sitting on uh, even on a coffee table at home and you are sitting on the floor so that your faces are about the same height it might be that he is in a high chair if that's not going to uh, be too res uh, restrictive for him and you've got your face right there with him most of the time for me I'm just trying to get whole kids on my lap uh, when we're doing this kind of thing because again I like uh, being that close face to face the other thing that we want to do here is give super specific feedback so we say things like oh you know if we're working on those little air kisses like oh I hurt your lips I see your lips your lips are puckered like mine or you have kissy lips or you might say something like oh I heard you click your tongue you clicked like Laura listen listen or or even just something like oh you made your eyes so big your eyes got 
big. You're going to give that specific feedback because remember what we said about a lot of these kids. It's it's that they don't really realize that they have voluntary control over their faces and over their mouths or even over their bodies. And so at this phase, we want to get that control right here so they get it. And again, does a typically developing toddler know that he or she always, is there always that level of awareness? No, but our kids aren't talking. <laughs> and so we're going to have to work on things a little bit differently. So I hope that makes sense for you. All right, now let's talk a little bit about horns and whistles. And again, I, I told you that I am not an expert in this level of treatment at all. I use this when I need it. So we let me give you a couple of resources or at least one resource for where you can go get yourself some tools like this and some more training. Uh, TalkTools.com is a resource for parents uh, with directions so that you and the parents will learn how to kind of walk through those whistle and horn protocols because these are individualized for children and especially since we've had uh, these worldwide shutdowns and masked up and all of our infection control procedures you're certainly going to want every child to have his own individual set of these I'll tell you I bought the talk tool protocol probably 10 years ago I can count on my hand one hand the number of times that I've used it but again when I've needed to use it it's been there so I wanted to share that resource with you some people think that that's not evidence-based but look at their research because they 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 have some pretty good stats to back up their own uh, materials so don't necessarily fall into what you're hearing about that do your own research about it now for me for most of the kids that I've used this with especially when this has just been a teeny little tiny part of our uh, therapy protocol I've used the cheapo informal method <laughs> meaning that I have gotten birthing horns and whistles at the dollar store and at places like oriental trading or at Target like gone over to the birthday party aisle or even um, toys and tools like those little wooden train whistles so you can certainly do it with those things too so how do you know what are some guidelines that you can use when you're picking toys and again, this might sound a little more uh, oral motor based than you typically have been if you are like me and are a language, language, language person. But I'll just tell you what's worked for me. I try to look for whistles and horns that have different size mouthpieces so that I might look for some that are completely round, like we would think about with a birthday horn or more like a whistle where it's kind of flat there. We also want to avoid passive activities like the toothettes. Remember when we kind of all used to do that if you're as old as me <laughs> you worked back in the 90s when oral motor was just all the rage and we did a lot of stimulation things in kids mouths I don't do anything like that anymore but these little horns and whistles again I think can be fun because they're just making th that child more aware of things there will feeding activities do the same thing absolutely we're just looking for one more tool in uh, the tool bag and a big thing that I do here is make sure that everybody in the session has what we are doing or what I'm recommending so it might be that you are giving parents um, their own sets of these birthday horns you know you buy a pack of birthday horns and just send it home with the family so that everybody is modeling and why is everybody modeling because we're going back to our goal which is what it's imitation so we want you know if there's a parent and if they're a parent and a kid there a brother or sister there with that child you want everybody doing it because again imitation is our main goal with that so with these level three activities particularly with the horns and the whistles you know sometimes you'll see therapists who really are oral motor experts and a lot more skilled in this area than I am really try to document changes in respiration you know they'll say you know we've done these things and kids have more control breath control and breath support and they're going to need that to talk and that is absolutely true but that is so hard to measure you might have therapists that say again this 
may improve awareness of his mouth and I say that in alertness but you know can can we really can we really measure those things not really unless we see that a child again is more is able to do it in a more mature more complex way than we saw before and so those are the kinds of things that we know well you know we did get a functional outcome on that he is doing he is doing that better he is using his mouth more and then when we get there do you know what we do we immediately move on to the level four and level five things and because we're working on imitation here and all we've wanted to do is move that imitation up to a more mature more complex more speech-like place and so when we get them imitating with structures here at their with their face and with their mouth we know that we have gotten a little closer to that goal all right so I'm going to show you now a little girl that I worked with several years ago with uh, her family uh, they lived about an hour from me so they came periodically I saw this little girl a handful of times uh, wonderful wonderful parents but this little girl had a tough start she was a micro preemie and actually uh, she had a really traumatic birth her parents went to one hospital they didn't want to deliver sent her to another hospital to deliver so again you know that's kind of how her life started with with all of these uh, traumatic issues and certainly as a micro preemie she had lots and lots of medical issues at three she's still not walking or talking and she was tube fed at this point her parents saw a spark <laughs> with cognition with her and I saw that too and she was starting to try to uh, use her breath do some and even some early vocalizations and we had worked through talking about some early AAC things that we were doing with some some Big Mac switches and things like that so I don't want you to think this is all that we did with this child <clears throat> but we did do some level three things because she was trying to play and imitate with toys. And she was trying to do some things with her little body, especially in the context with her Big Mac switch and with using her music. So this is how I most often introduce level three. These are very informal, very casual uh, therapy clips. I, I want you to see again just how this is not as structured or as formal as you might think it is. And so watch these clips and then uh, then we'll finish up. Okay. One, for, one for Addie, one for Dad. These are all new. Wow, look at her zoning in on it. She just... Look. She's like, creepy. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with you people? But when you're doing it, I want you all, I want you all three doing it. Really playing. Okay. There's no right or wrong. You know, you just get to do it. And again, her the purpose is to build all that strength and coordination that she's gonna need. Okay. And again, just make it fun. If she's crying, don't do it. Put it away. 
Okay. If she's sitting in her chair kind of waiting for you to get her food ready, that would be a good time to just kind of put them there. And okay. you mm -hmm. do it while you're stirring or cooking, and again, don't make it like it's a do or die thing. Okay. Just when you're comfortable and when you're kind of comfortable. Okay. Um, birthday morns, anything you can do. Some of these are going to, this one's going to be too hard to get to you anyway. Cardboard things probably aren't going to work great for her either because she's going to be so groovy on it that it's going to be totally gross. But take one just so that you can practice. That is what it does. Did you hear what her parents said at the end of that? They said, knowing Addie, it's going to take a long time to get her to even accept that in her mouth. And why is that? Because we know that she has a problem with that because she doesn't eat orally. But it was wonderful that her parents knew, gosh, this is going to be hard for her. This is going to kind of be an acceptance thing. Uh, and that, that's our whole point, is we just want that to be more comfortable for her. So I wanted to point that out. And am I sitting that little girl in my lap and forcing her to get that whistle in? You know, do I know that she's going to have enough breath control to blow that whistle or make a sound? No. I mean, her muscle tone, I do not anticipate that she will want to do that. But, you know, these kind of, these things matched with what, what a feeding therapist would be doing there with having her just get get comfortable with things, you know, in and around her mouth. And so I wanted to mention that. And that was great that her parents already knew that, knew that this would just be something tiny that they did, just kind of as a little preparation thing. All right, so let's talk about one more thing here. What can we do if a child isn't vocalizing consistently? And that's where we'll find a lot of these kids, where we think that we may have to use some of this level three stuff. It's, it's a pretty big deal, isn't it? We have to get kids noisy before they learn how to talk. Now, I don't really address this in the treatment manual that we're discussing today. And when we're, uh, all this information is from, I, I told you before, my book, Building Verbal Imitation Skills in Toddlers. So you can see the front of that book but we don't really cover that here because we kind of assume that kids are vocalizing and they are making noise and that's kind of one of the again one of the prerequisites here so what do we do when we have a kid that really doesn't have a consistent voice what would be the 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 best thing to do there you know again we've we've got to get them noisy and i've done a lot of shows about that i want to direct your attention uh back to show uh four uh, where we are looking at how to it's in the autism podcast series and how we can specifically help children with autism who are nonverbal and non-vocal learn how to produce some sound. So go back and watch that show and I'll link that show below so that you can uh, get those ideas there. There's also a really big section about this in my very comprehensive treatment manual. Let's talk about talking, ways to strengthen the 11 skills all toddlers master before we're 
words emerge. And so vocalizing purposefully is, is one of those 11 skills that a kid has to be able to do before he's able to talk. And again, we're not going to go into all that information here, but let me just give you some ideas for some activities to promote more sound. And this would, uh, this would be if a child is not making very much noise. So we know to do that, the most logical thing we can do is get a kid to move his or her whole body. So gross motor movement activities like jumping on a trampoline or a bed if you're at home, like swinging on a swing if you're outside on playground equipment or at home swinging in a blanket. If you watched uh, the previous course here, course number 424, you saw an example where a therapist put a kid in a swing and she uh, you know, moved him back and forth and she just did that herself. Sometimes when kids aren't noisy, we'll start to do some gross motor things like that and we start to hear a little bit of noise. And it's not just crying or yelling or something again that would be reflexive there. It's, it's purpose. You'll hear that. You'll get that bump. Any little game like running or let's say you have a little ball pit, anything that you can do where that where you just emphasize making as much noise and having as much fun as you can movement wise. Uh, sometimes I have taken kids into larger spaces that echo. If I have worked with them and let's say that we've they've been in a church preschool program and I can't get much from them in their room uh, with other children, and we don't like to do a ton of pull-out, but sometimes it, it's worth going to a new setting with a large space that echoes so that they can really hear themselves. Or uh, maybe at home, maybe the car is pulled out of the garage, and the garage is more echoey than it would be, or at, uh, you know, uh, an attic kind of room, or anything where the acoustic properties are going to be different so that a child can hear himself uh, vocalize there and hear the noise that he's making. Uh, any kind of toy that amplifies sound. So you might find those little microphones at the Dollar Tree, you know, those kinds of toys that uh, uh, again, that you can use just with a child, and you're not going for words here. You're not even going for specific sounds. You're just going for noise. You want a kid to know that he can, he can control his own voice. He can, he can make it loud or soft. He can turn it on or off. That's that's how basic we want to be with this. Just getting him to, you know, let's say you take the microphone and you vocalize, you know, and, and decide based on a kid. What, what you might, what they might be more likely to do. So let's say that you hear them do some babbling where they do, where you hear a D, you know, a da 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 or a do do do. That's what you're going to vocalize into the microphone because you want them to be able to, again, learn to make that noise. And so you're going to take a sound that you've already heard them make and you want to do that. So you can try that kind of little microphone. You can try a funnel from your kitchen or a paper towel roll. Uh, at Halloween, if, if you do Halloween, with kids or maybe Easter time, any of those little celebratory events, especially in the United States where we have those uh, little buckets. And so you'll see that at Walmart or at Target or any other uh, a big retailer like that where they sell those seasonal buckets. Those are fantastic to be able to get those and to just lean down and just vocalize into that bucket. You know, even an ah or an ooh, and that's going to sound so different and so loud and be so purposeful that you can give that container to that child and then they're going to try that same thing. And that might be where you get that first little back and forth imitation or that first little time that you can say, she did that on purpose. She tried to copy me and use her little voice on purpose. And I've never heard her be that intentional before. So those things are good. You don't have a little bucket? Let me give you something more practical. Take a pot or a bowl from your kitchen and do the same thing and set up that little game where you are vocalizing into that pan and then you again you're looking up at her you're you're giving her your little 
your little twinkly eye signal like this is so fun this is so fun I'm having so much fun and again without even saying that where you're just vocalizing into that container and then you know you make it real obvious that you want her to do that too so you put the container over in front of her or the paper towel roll or the microphone or anything any little tool that you you're using like that too with the purpose of getting her to vocalize and again this will be imitative and it's actually just a little step up it's it's moving toward that level four but we've got to get kids to be able to intentionally vocalize and so for a lot of kids that's kind of a missing step and I've had that question before and I didn't address it in in building verbal imitation skills in toddlers in that book so I wanted to address it here in this course one other really super successful technique that uh, and let me let me let me quantify that it's not successful unless it works right but and I've had it work with some kids that have it's just blown me away when it's worked and and, it, and it's not every strategy is not going to be 100% successful with every kid and we talked about that before you know why is it harder for, you know this this child isn't talking so of course anything that we're getting them to do vocally or verbally is going to be more difficult for them and so all strategies are not going to work because we know that they have atypical development they have an atypical system so this is going to be hard so this is one other technique that you can try and it's from Pamela Marshalla and from her book uh, Becoming Verbal with Apraxia with Childhood Apraxia and she talks about a technique called vocal contagion now I call it crowd noise <laughs> so this is where we are going to make kind of background noise so that a child feels more comfortable in vocalizing himself and he feels like he's going to join in and so we know that this kind of technique works especially for kids when a parent or a teacher will say something like you know he is really really quiet until we get outside to, to a playground time. We play outside and then he's so loud because he's really, he hears the other kids and the other kids are excited. And you know, it's the movement thing too. Or when a parent says to you, you know, he doesn't make a sound at all, but I put him in the van and the other kids are all talking and being loud and he talks and tr tries to talk and is loud too. That's when you know that this crowd noise or this vocal contagion technique is going to work. So what is that? That is where every everybody who's in that child's environment begins to just talk to themselves so when you set this up you all get something to play with something something to talk about and you you all do it you just kind of talk to yourself so that means mom is going to sit it, let, let's say that we're all playing with let's say we're in a sandbox and we're all playing together in the sandbox and so mom is going to take her shovel and she's going to dig in the sand and she's just going to start to talk about that and what she does. And we're going to tell mom, mom, don't just say words, do some sound effects too, which are going to be coming up at level four and level five. And we'll talk more about that in these next, in the next course, but we're going to say, just make some noise. So, you know, you're going to show mom how to do it. I, you know, when I dig in sand, you know, I try to pretend like I can't get the shovel in. And so I'm just doing, uh, 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 and then whoosh you know just any kind of little sound when I'm pouring the sand out so talk to mom about that and how she can make those sounds or let's say that you're playing baby dolls and you you're pretending you're going to feed your baby doll and so you're doing you know <laughs> when you give the baby a bottle or you're going to say oh let's give baby a bite oh take a bite baby you know just any little sound and mom needs to keep that going and then as a the therapist you're doing it too you're over kind of uh, you know in your own little world playing with your own baby doll and making those noises and you're not even really necessarily directing that to the child the idea is everybody makes noise and the theory is the child who doesn't vocalize then learns I want to join in I want to make this noise too and I'll tell you it happens a lot in preschool programs and in daycare programs where a child who's just as as i like to say eerily quiet one who you can just hear your own heartbeat because they in a session because if you're not talking nothing no other language is happening and you can even hear your your own heartbeat it's that quiet in that room these these crowd noise kinds of situations are when it will happen one of the best professional experiences 
that I've ever had was back in the early, it was 2002 to 2004 or five when we ran a toddler playgroup program. And we had late talkers and some typically developing kids, but late talkers come into our program. And so for these children who were there who hardly said anything or hardly made any noise, this is a strategy that we used a lot where we just had group play and everybody, again, is kind of doing their own thing. And this is where we would start to really hear some first little verbal attempts. So if that's not a strategy that you've tried as a therapist, get that going, especially if you're seeing a child who's extremely quiet and you're seeing them in a group setting like like with their siblings at home or with other kids in daycare. Don't pull those kids away to be isolated by themselves. You want to make those kids be with other kids so they can hear that noise and hear everybody else talk and benefit from that. All right, so let's talk about troubleshooting for level three. First of all, uh, I'm going to say it one more time. If a child is already verbal, you've already heard him start to make a lot of noise, you probably are not going to need level three. Skip on to level four. Uh, if a kid is, is at those higher levels, you're trying to do a lot of sound effect kinds of things, play sounds, exclamatory words that we're going to talk about in the next course, and you've gotten nowhere, maybe you've backed up to this level, which again is, is where... Um, I use that a lot. So again, I tell parents, you know, this this level three, and, and other, I tell other therapists this too. This with level three, uh, again, could be your backup two point, but it also could be a point with kids where you're like, this is not working at all. I need to move forward. I need to go ahead and, and try try something else there. So that's what I want to leave you with with this show not every kid's going to need it when they need it they need it when they don't they don't and you are going to have to make that decision just based on what you're seeing and what you're hearing from a child and how easy it is and what his what his predispositions have been is it hard for him to use his little mouth does he have feeding issues is it a sensory issue does he just fight his mom for everything when she tries to brush his teeth is there there there's just no way a tool even like a toothbrush is getting close to that kid's mouth and so we have to think about these things and consider them so I hope I've given you enough to think about <laughs> so that you are going to be able to make those individualistic and those logical and rational decisions based on a child's own strengths and weaknesses and just for the record I have treated many 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 late talkers successfully without doing one of these facial or mouth movement uh, kinds of imitation things without sounds and certainly without breaking out one horn or whistle without anything to do with oral motor uh, but when you do need it you need it and I want to make sure you have those tools all right that's all for this show um, if you are ready to move on I can't wait to see you in the next course which is talking about uh, teaching a child those easy earliest vocalizations it's my very favorite part of this method so if you haven't watched that course uh, yet that's your next one in line, and I will see you over there. Uh, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talk's podcast. <music>